0: And candidates in states with razor thin margins. Listen to Build the Change Now wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news?
1: To Democracy-ish, I'm Danielle Moody.
2: And I'm Wachathalee.
1: And we have another fabulous guest in our docket today to, you know, discuss our continued crumbling democracy with some bright spots of how we're all staying sane and not losing our mind uh, while Republicans are pushing us to the brink. Waj, please do the honor.
2: Uh, Our pleasure to finally introduce to the podcast Jared Yates Sexton. You all know him from the fantastic Muckrake podcast, which you have to listen to every week. He's also a best-selling author, his last book was American Rule, uh, and his latest book is coming out in January, it's called The Midnight Kingdom, A History of Power, Paranoia, and the Coming Crisis, and specifically, he's talking about how we've seen the same three villains, if you will, Danielle, political power, religious indoctrination, and economic dominance uh, as the foundational concept of this thing called the West, Hmm, sounds pretty familiar and how this is intertwined and how this explains the right word lurch towards what I call fascism. Uh, But Jared might disagree with me, let's see. Jared, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks for having me. Uh, All right, let's get right to it. Uh, The Midnight Kingdom, it's your upcoming book. Uh, The subtitle is A History of Power, Paranoia, and the Coming Crisis. All right, so of all the multiple crises that we are (laughs) facing, which one uh, are you
1: talking about? Yeah,
2: yeah. The one that you, let's talk about politics first, right? You're talking about politics, religion, and, and, and economics. Let's talk about the political crisis. You talk about this often on Twitter. I recommend everyone follow you. You've been sounding the alarms like me and Danielle. You've oftentimes been ignored, but history has proven you right. What is the number one political crisis that is facing this nation before the 2022 20, midterms?
3: Well, going going into the midterms, you got to look at the Republican Party, which has ceased being an actual political party and is now basically a public relations front for concentrated capital and a uh, an, an authoritarian movement that is absolutely obsessed with destroying democracy. I mean, there's a reason we're having this conversation and also literally rolling back the progress of the 20th century. So what we're actually talking about at this point is not uh, a political party that's interested in representative democracy, who's not interested in continuing the traditions of what some people call liberal democracy. They are literally a front for a group of people who have been carrying on a, a relentless project for decades now that has been trying to literally destroy representative government, not take it over, not to dominate it, but to actually get rid of it effectively in in the United States of America. And it's part of a larger movement international wise. And all you have to do to see what they what they literally want to accomplish. All you have to do is turn an eye to Hungary with Viktor Orban or Russia with Vladimir Putin and to see what uh, those autocrats have now come to call illiberalism, which I think is just a a nicer euphemism for saying fascism, authoritarianism, whatever uh, definition you want to create here or use. Basically, the the biggest problem right now is that the Republican Party has gone full bore with both feet into this project.
2: Daniel, if I may, real quick, since you mentioned Hungary, uh, I think it bears reminding uh, our audience that just over the weekend, Viktor Orban, Mm -hmm. the leader of Hungary, was invited to address Mm -hmm. The CPAC, CPAC conference in Texas. And this is a week after he openly said he is against mixed, mixed racist. Races.
1: Yeah. Um, you know, I, I think that what to me is actually, Jared, the crisis that even precedes the idea of sliding into fascism is the fact that we have a media that is absolutely complicit in it. Yeah. So when when we say when when I hear you say you know you need to look no further than Hungary and Russia, right? Well, we had uh, all cable news outlets covering CPAC, right? The the conservative right-wing conference as if it was a a normal gathering, as if it was, you know, the the Democratic Convention. Um and I and what I said uh recently on On MSNBC, I said, you know, we wouldn't be covering a KKK rally. That would seem crazy. Right. So I'm confused why the media continues to cover these these summits, these hate rallies as if they are anything other than that. And so I want to get your thoughts on how does one even begin to connect the dots because we're a country that doesn't care about education so we don't even do comparative government unless you have tested out into like ap in in high school right advanced placement classes we don't even we don't even understand our own government let alone comparative so what do you how do you believe that then people come to make the connections if we have a media that's complicit, and an education system that is in dust.
3: Well, I'll go ahead and I'll say that, that this, this project hasn't been hidden whatsoever. That's the incredible part about this. Is you know I, I say this all the time on the podcast, and and as we're talking about like the growing illiberalism, it's not like we're looking into a crystal ball or we're doing you know like high level professional sort of uh, expert stuff. Like if you actually listen to what the Republican Party has said and what uh, Orbanists have said or Putinists have said, they've been very clear about what they're doing. And I would actually go ahead and say that it's it's not just a complicit nature of our media; it's the fact that our media is not willing to look in the mirror and understand the environment that it has played a role in not just creating, but reinforcing. And a large part of this has to do with the fact that behind all of it, we can talk about ideology all day long, but really, the driving force behind that ideology is a bunch of really wealthy people who have continually funneled their money into these projects and into, into these larger movements and, and, and basically used the Republican Party as a front or, you know, Orban or any of these people. The media is not interested in investigating that. They're mm-hmm. not interested in having conversations about why this is happening. So, for instance, um, I'll, I'll take the most recent sort of American example, January 6th. And right now we're in the middle of this massive investigation from the January 6th commission and we're talking about Donald Trump and absolutely Donald Trump should be held accountable and all of these idiot cronies around him who basically you know tripped on a rake and almost carried out a coup. But you know what we're never talking about? We're never talking about the billionaires and the millionaires who funded this thing, who have given them their money, who actually put together the logistical elements of January 6th. And by the way have gone ahead and funded speaking of education one conspiracy theory after another to take over regional and local legislatures, including school boards. Those people are the ones who are funding this thing. Our media is not interested in going any further than what I always refer to as almost like a mythological passion play, right? Oh my God, I hope that Joe Manchin has has an awakening this weekend and Mm -hmm. I hope he gets a good night's sleep and, and maybe he'll come around and figure out what the shit is going on, but in all truth, what's actually happened is our representative government has been completely captured by special interest and wealthy people who are interested in destroying democracy. And so, one of the problems that keeps happening is our media has almost virtually no interest in getting down to the core of that and actually troubling everything from that to the inherent white supremacist privilege that isn't uh, throughout our media. I mean, if you actually, Waj and I have talked about this on separate podcasts. You have one person after another, reporters, media, pundits, politicians, you name it. These are people who come from incredible privilege. And, and mm-hmm. in their own idea of who they are and the world that they inhabit and the world that they exist in, it would crumble. You know, if they actually looked at what was at the heart of this thing and what has actually corrupted this uh, this American system of government, so it's a combination of things. And on top of that, they're making tons of money off of this—the entertainmentization of politics, the sportification of politics. It almost has nothing to do with actual politics, but it is—you know—it's a billion-dollar industry. So that, that in in essence, to actually understand and actually trouble what's going on would carve out the foundation that that all. these people like basically uh completely rely on and as a result they're either unwilling or they they know very well that they're not going along
1: from the new yorker staff writer vincent cunningham a keenly observed novel of a young black man searching for his place in the world amidst a moment of historic change Great Expectations is about David's 18 months working for the senator's presidential campaign. Along the way, David meets a myriad of people who raise a set of questions, questions of history, art, race, religion, and fatherhood that force David to look at his own life anew and come to terms with his identity as a young black man and father in America. Inspired by the author's experiences working on Obama's 2008 presidential campaign, Cunningham uses a political campaign as his narrative backbone. Great Expectations will be one of the talked about novels of the year, Colin McCann. Great Expectations is available wherever books are sold.
0: Hey, I'm Aloak, the host of Build the Change a brand new podcast from MacBlue about the people at the center of progress. Join us on a journey across the country as we uncover stories about the everyday folks working together to build something bigger than themselves, real change. You'll hear from students in Appalachia advocating for LGBTQ-friendly books in their communities, healthcare workers providing telehealth abortions across the country, immigrant farm workers fighting for their safety in the blazing sun, and candidates in states with razor-thin margins listen to build the change now wherever you get your podcasts.
2: We usually take weekly bets, uh, bets on who's gonna curse more me and Danielle and so we try our best to try to profit uh, as much as we can shamelessly from our podcast <laughs> and milk our audience members of their money. Uh, you know you you unpack there a lot I think the education angle is one that we should we should spend. Uh, some time unpacking in the podcast. But since you mentioned Joe Manchin, uh, what just happened was a historic passage of the Inflation Reduction Act, right? Uh, it's going to be the single largest investment the US has taken to hopefully reduce uh, our uh, gas emissions by 40% by the end of the decade. So we don't literally go extinct as a human species. Uh, some taxes on corporate billionaire companies uh, and the reduction of some prescription drugs. Great. Awesome. However, wow. What's also important is that the last second Republicans came in and killed capping off insulin at 35 bucks for everyone. For those who don't know, insulin costs about $10 to make. Around the world, you can buy it for 15 bucks, 17 bucks. In fact, Costa Rica, which is the second uh, like, uh, highest uh, country in the world where it costs insulin, only costs 25 bucks. In the United States, the lowest average is 100 bucks. So literally, we have a country here, Jared, where people are dying because they're rationing their insulin, right? And so let's use this latest example. Uh, even Joe Manchin, who all of a sudden came in, but people aren't talking about how he got these kickbacks and how he, you know, this climate deal basically helps. Uh, you know, the big companies that are actually funding him, right? And Kristen Cinema, who comes in at the last second to help the e- private equity firms, right? She goes, wait a second. Let me just see if this helps the private equity firms. Somebody so, needs like, to stand up for them, Waj.
3: That's no the thing. Please? Mm-hmm.
2: So let's take inflation, uh, you know, inflation reduction, because Danielle and I have talked about this. People forget, y'all, that the Build Back Better plan, the original name, it had in it paid parental leave. It had yep. in it, pre-K. It had in it like Medicaid expansion for seniors to get dental coverage. But Joe Manchin comes in and says, no, 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 let's cut that. And this is what we get. We're grateful for it. But still, talk to us about the synergy that you've talked about between big business and politicians and how it has neutered what is a historic bill that just got passed thanks to 50 Democratic senators and the tie-breaking vote of Kamala Harris. Well, so I'm always hesitant to
3: go ahead and go through the lens of Joe Manchin, but it's important to do so for people who maybe don't understand this yet, which is Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema are not enigmas. They're not sphinxes that we don't know why they do what they do. They are just absolutely raking in so much money from special interest. And Joe Manchin, of course, is there for fossil fuels. Kristen Cinema basically has a sign out her door that's like, for sale, whoever wants to come through. The amount of money that she has coming in is incredible. I also want to go ahead and point out that even though we focus on those two, they're not the only Democrats who are standing right. in front of a lot of this legislation. It just so happens they're the ones who benefit politically from it. In In the case of Joe Manchin coming around uh, for the this recent uh, legislation, it's important to note that he got a really late night call from Larry Summers, who came through and was like, hey, Joe, we need to talk about the fact that we need to go ahead and throw some money into the economy. And on top of that, we're at a real apocal epo- uh, uh, moment where we need to do something about climate change. We need to move off fossil fuels. Everybody's known that, even the fossil fuel companies. They've just been waiting for the last second of the spigot to go ahead and turn it. So they need to go ahead and go in that direction. Joe Manchin finally did it. And by the way, I, I got to say it was what, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of acres of drilling permits that came along with this in order right. to buy right. him off. And, and on top of that, Kirsten Cinema. I mean, my God, like I said, thank God somebody finally stood up for hedge fund managers. I mean, I the- mean,
1: right. I, I'm so glad that they have their own lobbyists embedded in the Senate to protect them.
3: And what's great about that is it's not like they spend any money. It's just like she did it out of the good of her heart. That's oh, the yeah. wonderful the part of it. In the midst of all of this, if we want to talk about the material conditions of everything that we're going uh, and, and talking about here, if you actually look at climate change, I mean, my God, this isn't just a trillion dollar problem. This is tens of trillions, if not hundreds of trillions of dollars before this thing is taken care of. The financial institutions understand this. And this is one of the reasons why we have such a problem of crisis in America If you look at countries, and America, by the way, has benefited because America is a large country that spread west, obviously, as it was carrying out one genocide after another and was taking over all this land. Guess what? There's no more land for the United States to take over. There's another problem, which is climate change is going to start shrinking the United States of America. It's also going to create a massive crisis of climate refugees, and we're not just talking about brown people from, you know, the the global south, we're talking about people in Delaware, we're talking about people in Florida, and as we're watching things start to play themselves out, when material conditions change like this, there are always crises because you have to deal with it somehow you know you you, somehow or another the system has to take care of the problem either we can approach it from an egalitarian standpoint which is we're all human beings and we deserve dignity and safety and these resources can be shared or you can say you know what i'm hopping on the white supremacy train and death is a part of life Mm -hmm. and i always tell i always tell people and in this i live in georgia All people need to do to understand where we're going is to look what happened under the Trump administration with the way that they treated uh, refugees and look at what they did. They didn't just put them in cages. They didn't just separate people. A a story that kept getting ignored and kicked down the road. They forcibly sterilized people. And that was before this crisis takes its full full sort of uh, shape. The Democrats right now, are basically representing larger financial institutions and sort of the status quo, trying to reckon with what is coming, right? And by the way, the Democratic tent is so huge at this point. It's everywhere from center left, your Bernie Sanders, all the way over to Joe Manchin and Bill Crystal, who somehow or another is now rooting for the Democratic Party. The Republican Party doesn't represent any of that. It represents a very, very small financial elite, right, uh, who want to literally destroy democracy, but also a white supremacist base who doesn't understand what's going on in large part because the education has been completely hollowed out. And instead, as we we're going back to what Wash was talking about, they go in and they, they go after insulin, but their base doesn't understand that. They don't know what the vote was. They don't know. They, they'll never look at the ledger. All they get told is there are sinister forces that are coming after you. He Even would. Marco Rubio, who is supposed to be the common sense figure in the Republican Party, is now like, it's George Soros, which if people don't know this, it's an anti-Semitic conspiracy. Semitic, yep, yep. That's all they have to offer, which is, hey, we can't make your life better. Matter of fact, no one can make your life better. The only thing that we can take care of for you is we're willing to do the dirty business of hurting the people that you don't like and the people that you're afraid of. And right now, unfortunately, and I don't think this is permanent, but that is the current state of American politics.
0: Hey, I'm Alok, the host of Build the Change, a brand new podcast from MacBlue about the people at the center of progress. Join us on a journey across the country as we uncover stories about the everyday folks working together to build something bigger than themselves, real change. You'll hear from students in Appalachia advocating for LGBTQ friendly books in their communities, healthcare workers providing telehealth abortions across the country, immigrant farm workers fighting for their safety in the blazing sun, and candidates in states with razor thin margins. Listen to Build the Change Now wherever you get your podcasts.
1: You know, one of the things that 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 is part of your new book that will be coming out in January, but it's part of the Republican strategy and toolkit is stoking that paranoia. Right is stoking the paranoia and feeding into the fear. And what we considered, and again, I fault the media for this because back when the Tea Party first came up, we said, "Oh no, that's fringe, right? This is the fringe." And they love to make this very clear distinction between normal Republicans and then the Tea Party fringe, right? And then now we fast forward, and the Trump administration uh, wants to make a a, a similar uh, comparison between those that were, you know, a team sane and team insane. But the reality is is that a part, if, if not for paranoia, if not for fear, they actually would lose one of their biggest tools in their toolkit. And so, Jared, what the question that I have for you is, if we know that, as we're all nodding here and we know that to be true, what is it about Democrats or those of us who are actually living on Earth One and believe Earth One, how is it that we then are able to articulate the seriousness of what's going on and saying, because I said this today, I was just like, Republicans hate Americans. Like, mm. if you actually look at the way, it's not that they just hate black and brown people. That's a given, but they actually hate Americans. They don't think that you're worthy, right, of having lower drug costs, of having good schools, of having clean air. Like, everything is always about the story of somebody getting over on Uncle Sam, right, which is so far from the truth. And so I just ask, like, how do we, you write we all write here. You guys are actual public brilliant authors, right? But how do you message this in a way that people understand that they are being played? They are being played
3: well, a large part of it, so i I, I always hate this. It sounds like, you know, I'm just a simple, unfrozen caveman lawyer.
2: Um, I'm just an I, unsimple, unfrozen caveman lore. I just write books. My name I, is Jared Sexton.
3: <laughs> I, I I come from a really, really poor red state, Indiana factory mining family. Those are my people. Those are the people that you know when I go back home, I'm talking to, I'm I'm getting information from land. going to. Real America. Re- real America, exactly. And and one of the things I'll tell you is this. When you actually talk to them about politics and you're not just trading slogans, they understand it's all bullshit. And I'm Mm -hmm. talking about people who wear a Trump hat every single day and still have Trump 2020 signs out in their yards. If I'm sitting there and I'm like, let's go, Brandon, you know, yeah, let's go. And, And they're sitting there and they're throwing out Trump slogans or whatever. We don't actually talk about anything, right? We're just trading sort of identities at this point. They do understand. That the real problem in this country is a top-down situation mm-hmm. that the people at the top are trying to take their money they're trying to actually make their lives worse they get all of that and one of the problems that the democratic party often falls to and a large part of this is because the democratic party's base is largely college educated and mm. it's large it largely comes from from the professional managerial class a lot of the time the democratic party gets completely stuck thinking that they live in an Aaron Sorkin universe. And if they give the right (laughs) speech-
1: I like that universe, Jared. (laughs) I do too. Walk and talk, walk
3: and talk. I love it. And there's something wonderful about it. And a large part of it is because it does portray politics the way that we think it should be, right? Right, Like the idea that that you'll appeal to people's consciences. And in a, a way, a large part of the problem here is that the democratic party at this point the only identity it has is as a protector of institutions we have to protect the filibuster we have to do this the supreme court might have been stolen but we have to treat it with respect the democratic party that's not its roots i mean well <laughs> the democratic party has roots within slavery but you know in in terms mm-hmm. of the 20th century the democratic party got its base from working people, vulnerable communities, and it created a coalition that was talking about trying to change the world and make it at least a little bit more equitable. The problem here is that the Republican Party right now is the only party that's actually offering change. And that right now has been monopolized by them. They're offering the wrong change, but there is a problem with our institutions. Everybody knows it. Everybody understands it. And to make this very clear for anyone who doesn't know it already, this country was founded by white supremacist, wealthy, slaveholding men who created, by the way, a one-party system. They were not interested in having multi-parties. They wanted to control it among a very small financial elite. They went ahead and they said that slaves weren't people, obviously, that women didn't deserve a vote, poor people didn't deserve a vote. They created the institutions in order to contain that power. We have to start wrestling with how our institutions Are doing what they're supposed to do. That's the issue here: is that it is meant to oppress and it is supposed to go ahead and dominate. And the Democratic Party has to start pulling that back a little bit. But
1: you know, they
2: were were nice slave owners. I mean, they treated them well. The slaves were were well. That that was a hell of a story that they told. That is true. You know, but all this comes to a head with this one example, right? There is a there is a reason why this story is not being told. There is a reason why this story of America is so threatening. Right, to the right. point now where school boards are being attacked. There's a reason why books are being banned. There's a reason why CRT is the boogeyman. And the way this place has where this where this has always come to a head historically, and, and I want you to expound on this because you and Daniel are both educators. And I feel like education is this one battleground that really kick-started the, this new culture war, right? Ever since 1954, Brown versus Board of Education, where the Supreme Court said that segregation is unconstitutional. that was the genesis of the modern culture war, not Roe v. Wade, which then came on in the 70s with the rise of feminism. It's always been schools. And you know we were talking right before the recording about this latest horrific news that teachers are just tapping out because they're like, F this, I can't get paid enough. It's not worth it. School boards are like asking Merrick Garland to protect them from intimidation. Books are being banned. Betsy DeVos, just a couple of weeks ago, who used to be Trump's uh, Secretary of Education said, I think the Department of Education should be canceled and killed. And she also said public schools are a dead end. You know the, the the intersection of what you've been talking about: white supremacy, big money, the attack on democracy, and religious extremism. How is that playing out, Jared, in the public school system, or rather, I should say, the attack on public schools?
3: Well, it, this has been just an absolute attack for decades at this point. I always say this every time I'm on a podcast, everyone, if you have some time in the next couple of days, go and look at the Pal Memo. Just Google it, Pal Memo, go look at it. And basically what happened was after, uh, after the 1960s, which is around the time where all of a sudden public education started changing a little bit, right? Yeah. All of a sudden we started talking about how our institutions were created in order to protect power and expand power. All of a sudden, I'm telling you, the wealthiest people in the country lost their minds. And they're like, yep. they they looked around mm-hmm. the 60s and 70s with the counterculture and civil rights. And they said, we have to do something about this. And so what did they do? And to go back to the, the climate change problem, they learned from fossil fuel companies that knew that climate change was real going back into the 1950s. And what did they do? The same thing that they learned from the tobacco companies, which was lie and create mm-hmm. a completely yep. alternate reality with alternate quote-unquote experts and alternate, quote-unquote educators. And they created a an environment that was conducive to what they wanted. And everybody likes to talk about, oh, you know, we're in a post-truth moment. That's where it started. And it was an intentional plan. So what has happened to public education? One, it's been completely starved of resources. And that wasn't on accident. That was a, an all-out attack that basically wanted to create a small, manageable part. They've went after unions every chance they had. They vilified educators every time they had, treated them like elitists. And by the way, they took, uh, took advantage of the fact that a lot of people couldn't afford to go to school, and they resented it. I actually think one of the biggest problems in America right now is the resentment over higher education, the idea right. that some people can't go, some people can, it's now required in this new economy, yada, 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 But they've gone after it relentlessly. And if you look at history, any time that an authoritarian movement right? Takes over a situation and oppresses it. The first thing that they do is they go after education. They vilify them. And then they go ahead and they they make teachers so scared that they either leave the profession and or they're like, fine, fine, fine. Leave me alone. I'll teach whatever you want. And that, by the way, has been the case throughout history. I'm talking about post-Napoleon oppression. I'm talking about in fascist Italy, Nazi Germany, Soviet Russia, you name it. In every case- Yeah, exactly. You take over education, and basically, you say, you know what? People can't understand what's going on. If they understand what's going on, they're going to They'll, want. They're going to do something
1: life. about it. Yeah, exactly. I- I have said for the, the longest time that our public education system is the biggest tool and proponent of white supremacy. Absolutely. Without it, you would never have a class of you. You need right in this capitalistic hierarchical system. You need an underclass. How yeah. do you create a permanent underclass? Right. You 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 miseducate or undereducate them.
3: Yeah, exactly. And one thing, and going back to the the question you asked previously, which is how do you talk to people about this? Here's one way that you can actually talk to people in red state America. And it's this, if you go ahead and you say, on one hand, you can say, oh, QAnon's not real, CRT is not real, grooming's not real. That doesn't do it. That's a slogan, right? You're Mm -hmm. battling over headlines at that point. Here's what they need to understand. QAnon, CRT, this grooming stuff, it's all being used to capture these schools and areas. And why is it being done? Because they want to create what you were just saying, an underclass. They mm-hmm. want to create, and by the way, this is a large reason why Roe v. Wade was done away with. Yep. They want more workers and not only more workers they want more workers that they don't have to pay a lot Mm. and so as a result they're going after organized labor they're making sure that they don't know anything they're basically handing public education over to private interests not just in the interest of trillions of dollars worth of profit but also going ahead and creating precarity for people where they won't be able to leave their jobs Why? Because I got educated at Microsoft High School. And as a result, the only thing that I could possibly ever do is work for this corporation. And this is uh, one more thing I want to hit on before we're done. We are going to reindustrialize America. That's where we're going with all this. That's what the Republican Party wants to do at this point. They want to bring factories back, and they want to basically rewind globalism and go ahead and pay people nothing. They want to get rid of minimum wage. They want to get rid of regulations. They want to bring back child labor. And here's the thing. If you go and you talk to people in the reddest of red states of America, they know this. They understand it. And they're ready to talk about it. But no one's talking to them about it right now. It's simply going over their heads, talking about slogans that they also know are BS.
1: You know, I I have to say, Jared, that we could continue with this conversation for like literally two two more days, not even hours, uh, of time, because it is so eye opening. And I think that where we are is at a point where it isn't enough for us to be nice, right? To offer up euphemisms about the crises, the compounded crises that we're in, that we have to be sounding the alarm and connecting the dots and leaving no one behind. And to your point of What is it going to take? Well, let's stop with the bullshit slogans and actually start talking to people about Mm. what they stand to lose, which is their life and their livelihood. And that isn't a chicken little statement. It's it is, you know, pure facts. Um, Jared, we thank you so much for making the time to join Democracy-ish. Please promise that you will come back when you start your book tour in 2023. You know, if we're still around by then.
3: Literally anytime. Y'all, y'all are the best. Thank you. Well, where can people find you? Unfortunately, they can find me on Twitter. I'm at <laughs> JY Saxton. Um, you can go ahead and find me on there. I'm trying to use the medium for the best thing I possibly can. I also uh, co-host the Muckrake podcast, and I have a Substack called Dispatches from a Collapsing State.
2: And the book is coming out January. Where can people buy it? Where do you want them to
3: buy it? I, I want them to buy it, hopefully from their local independent bookseller. Uh, go go and help those people out. Uh, it's coming out from Dutton, uh, Penguin Random House, so you can get it from there as well.
1: Well, we appreciate you so much, and we will definitely have you back before then, folks. Thank you for listening to Democracy-ish. I'm Danielle Moody.
2: And I'm Lee,
1: And we will be back next week, if there is a country left. Inshallah.